good morning. My name is Adam Young. I am the lead pastor here at Element Church, and I want to welcome you, as Roselle just mentioned, to the first week of our new series titled Broken Saviors as we take a journey through the book in the Old Testament called Judges. Now, uh, some of you are accustomed to opening up the Bible app and following along through the events section in your Bible app each week. Some of you will just scan the QR code, which this QR code will open up a web browser on your device. So even if you don't have the Bible app or know how to find Element Church in it, this will open it up in a web browser anyways. Today might be the day, if you don't normally do this, uh, that you follow along with us in the Bible app because there's going to be a lot of scripture that I do read and will be up on the screen, but there's also going to be a lot that I'm going to read that will not be up on the screen just because uh, there's some larger blocks of text and it's a little bit more difficult to fit it all on the screen at the same time. So if you want to follow along with us this morning, you can open up the Bible app, click in the menu, click live events, and you'll find Element Church, or you can scan this QR code and follow along with us there. And so here's how the book of Judges begins, and this is going to set us up for our study throughout this series and also today. And here's how it begins. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So there's a lot to explain in even this very first verse. And notice how it says, after the death of Joshua. So the author here of Judges is giving us some context for where we should place this group of stories and this whole book together moving forward. Now, for some of you, just the word judges or even referencing the death of Joshua gives you all the contextual clues you need to know what's taking place and where this is happening. But I recognize not everybody uh, can identify some of those things. Um, the death of Joshua or the coming of the judges may not mean a lot to you historically or from the biblical perspective. And so I want to help give you the context if this first sentence maybe doesn't do it for you. And even if you do know the context already, maybe this will be helpful. And so when in your Bible, this is th these are the first seven books in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. We are going to spend the next eight weeks walking through the book of Judges. But let me give you even more context than this. Because while this may be helpful, this may still leave a lot of the pieces of the puzzle disconnected. And so let's just talk about what has taken place in a couple of these books leading up to the Judges, and hopefully this will help make more sense. And so in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible in the Old Testament, um, what we see in Genesis is that God creates something out of nothing. That's the big idea of the book of Genesis. Now, normally when we think of this, when we see this or read this, you're probably thinking of God creating all of the world and the universe, all of existence, God creating everything out of nothing by just the power of his word. And that would certainly be true. That's how the very beginning of Genesis begins, with the creation of all of existence. But Genesis isn't just about 
the creation of the world. It's also about the creation of a people. Yes, humanity, and that's a part of creation. But more specifically, a special group of people. You see, God in Genesis creates the people that we now call or refer to, especially in the Old Testament, as the Israelites. The Israelites were called to be a holy people and a kingdom of priests. Now, what are priests? Well, in the traditional sense, a priest is someone who stands in the gap between humans and God. A priest represents God to the people and represents the people to God. And Israel, as a nation, as a people, was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Their job was to sort of be the priest for all of the world. That they would stand in the gap to represent God to the world, to share about his truth and his justice and his love and his grace and his mercy. That was God's plan for them. But God didn't just take a group of people and then designate them as ministers or priests. He decided to create a group of people. And so in Genesis, he takes a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah, who are very advanced in years, well beyond the normal ability to bear children. And to make matters worse, Sarah couldn't have children even when she was younger and in her prime. And God says, I am going to make a new people group out of you and your descendants will be so many, it will outnumber the stars in the sky. And so God does use Abraham and Sarah. He takes an impossible situation to create something out of nothing. And we call them the Israelites because Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob also carried the name Israel. And from Israel, we see the explosion of growth of this people group. And so we call them the Israelites. And so in Genesis, we see that God creates something out of nothing, both existence itself, but also a very special people group. A people who the rest of the Old Testament is going to follow closely. The next book is Exodus. And so when God creates this special group of people in Genesis, he says he's going to do several things. One is he is going to give them a land they can call their own. He is going to multiply their descendants. And he is going to bless them so that they can be a blessing to all the nations of the world. But when we open the scene of Exodus, what we find is that these Israelites are slaves in Egypt. So it seems almost as though God has forgotten his promises. They're not being blessed. I mean, they're slaves. They don't have a land to call their own. And while God had promised that he would multiply their descendants, in the opening scenes of Exodus, Pharaoh shows up and says, I want to, I'm going to kill every baby, baby boy of the Israelites. So it almost seems as though God has forgotten. And the whole point of Exodus is to remind us that even when all hope seems lost, God's not finished yet. He always keeps his promises. He is faithful. And so the big idea of Exodus is that God frees his people, God leads his people, and God dwells with his people. And then we move on to the next book, Leviticus. And here in Leviticus, we're asking the question, how do a sinful people live with a holy God? If God is so holy and we are so sinful, how could we ever coexist together? 
And Leviticus seeks to answer that question. Here is how a sinful people can live with a holy God. And it's full of a lot of rules and things are rather strange from our perspective. But it gives us an idea of just how great God's holiness is and just how sinful we are. But it sort of answers that question for us. And then in Numbers, which is the fourth book, it's a case study. It's really asking the question, how will the people respond? How will they respond to all the incredible things they've seen God do? I mean, he led them out of Egypt. He freed them from the Egyptians. He defeated the Egyptian army without the Israelites even having to help. So they've seen God do some incredible things. They are on their way to the promised land, the land God said, I'm going to give you as part of your inheritance for being mine. And how are they going to handle all of these rules that God has just given them uh, about how to live with the Holy God? Well, the answer to this question is terribly. They fail. They come right up to the edge of the promised land in Numbers. They see this incredible land that God said, I set aside this for you because I'm faithful and I'll keep my promises. And of the entire nation of Israel, there were only two individuals who said, all right, guys, let's go. We got God on our side. Did you see what he did to the Egyptians? The people who live here in the land of Canaan, the people who live there are called the Canaanites. They're nothing for God. But despite those two individuals, the rest of the nation said, nope. Those people are too big, too strong, too scary. We, we, had, we were better off as slaves in Egypt. So God says, fine, if you are too fearful, if you're going to rely on fear rather than faith, then you don't get to go into the promised land. So God said, you're going to spend the next 40 years wandering around in circles in the wilderness until this entire generation dies off. And instead, I'll let the next generation inherit my promises, inherit my blessings. So the next book, Deuteronomy, we get a new generation. The old generation, those who lived by fear instead of faith, who didn't get to see God's promises come true because they wouldn't trust him, they all died off and a new generation has risen. But although it's a new generation, it's still the same God, it's still the same plan and the same rules. The word Deuteronomy literally means um, a re-giving of the law or a second law, meaning essentially God has to, to this new generation, say, okay, here's all the rules of how a sinful people live with the holy God. Here's all the things that I've done for your people that you were either not alive for or too young for. Let me remind you of all that I've done. And as we saw in the kids' Bible story video earlier, even Moses, this great leader himself, did not trust God and was not allowed to enter into the promised land. But one of the two people who actually did trust God back in Numbers, who said, no, 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 if God could defeat the Egyptians, he can defeat the people in this land, was a man named Joshua. And so as they enter into this promised land, they have a new leader. It's not Moses anymore, now it's Joshua. And so this new generation begins an old journey. And then that brings us to the book of Judges. It's another case study. Just as with the old generation, we had this case study of how will they respond to all they've seen God do 
and all that God has said to them. Judges is another case study. How will this new generation respond to all that God has done and all that he has said? And that is the scene that is set for this book. And now we're here to ask and we're here to see what will these people do? How's it going to play out? Are they going to listen? Are they going to be faithful? Are they going to trust God and follow him? Are they going to live by faith instead of fear? And as we take this journey through Judges, we'll get to see. But as a spoiler alert, you can probably guess about how it's going to go. And so as we opened up to verse 1 in the book of Judges, we read that the people are like, okay, so who should go in the land first to start taking possession of it and starting to push the Canaanites out, those who live in that land currently? And they say, God says, send Judah. Now, Judah was not an individual. Judah was a group of people. It was a tribe. It used to be an individual. And so the nation of Israel is divided up into 12 tribes, Judah being one of them. And God says, you send this group in first, they'll get the work started. Now, let me give some context for why God wanted the Israelites to get rid of the Canaanites, the people who lived in this land God had set aside for them. Number one, it was spiritual. In Joshua, we see God tell the people, do not make a covenant with these other nations. Do not serve and worship their gods, and do not let your children intermarry with their children. Because the moment you do, your heart will begin to be drawn away from me and towards other things, other people, and other gods. And God was trying to protect his people and saying, do not muddy the waters. Stay focused. Because if you decide you're going to live shoulder to shoulder with these other people, I promise temptation is going to come your way. And so one of the reasons that God wanted to get rid of these people out of the land was for the sake of the Israelites. He knew what would happen. It's a foreshadow of what is going to happen. The other reason is because God was passing on judgment, his judgment, onto the wickedness, for the wickedness, of these people. Let me give you an example. Sometimes it bothers us to see God's people fight wars in the Old Testament. This is not a defense or a declaration that that should happen today. Those are two very, very separate issues, and we are not talking about today at all. But in the Old Testament, sometimes it bothers us that God would send his people to do it. But it didn't bother the people of the time, even those who were on the other end. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 7. And this is a local Canaanite king who, as he is being defeated and his armies are being defeated by the Israelites, it says, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So even the king, this Canaanite king, recognized that what was happening to his armies and his people and his nation was God's judgment and punishment on them for their wickedness. And God states it multiple times in the Old Testament that 
Not only will he punish Israel when she rebels, but he also punishes other nations when they do wicked things as well. And so God moving the Canaanites out to make way for Israel was both a spiritual thing for Israel and a way for God to pass his own judgment on the wickedness of the people there who had done wicked things. And so early on in the book of Judges, it appears as though the Israelites are actually going to listen to God, they're going to do what he says, and they're going to find victory. That God is going to be on their side. They say, okay, so we're going to go and we're going to follow God. We're going to live by faith and not by fear. So who should go first? God says, send Judah. Send that tribe in first. They'll get the work started. And initially it looks like it's going well. And then here's what we read in verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the the inhabitants excuse me, of the plain because they had chariots of iron. But he could not drive out the inhabitants. Now that seems weird. I mean, God told him, told them, this is what you're going to do. God said, as we read in verse 1 and 2, I have already given this land to you, so go take possession of it. God had already told the people, I am going to fight your battles for you. Those enemies may be scary for you, but they're nothing to me, so go. Now, how how could God send them on a mission that they couldn't complete? I thought God was a God who keeps his promises. What we're going to see is that this phrase, could not drive, could not, actually is going to become pretty significant. This is not going to be on the screen for you, but let me just read about some of the other tribes and their success. So this this was verse 19, let's just, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin, another one of the tribes, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Manasseh, another tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Verse 34, and the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. Sounds like Judah wasn't the only one with a problem. Sounds like all the tribes were struggling. So again, how could God tell them to do something, command them to do it, then promise it had already been done, yet they couldn't do it? Well, let's look at the opening of chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have 
done. The Israelites said, oh, God, we, we couldn't do it. And then God said, mm, no. It's not that you couldn't do it. Actually, it's that you wouldn't do it. Now, I know these stories are thousands of years old, and there's a lot of difference between their culture and our culture. But they're humans just like us. So let me ask you this question. Where in your life are you saying, I can't? But God is saying, actually, it's that you won't. Where in your life are you throwing your hands up and saying, sorry, God, I know you told me this. I know you commanded me to do this. I know you promised this to me, but I'm sorry, God, I just can't. God says, actually, no, it's that you won't. Sorry, God, I can't do the right thing at work because if I do the right thing, then all the people who do the wrong thing will get a leg up. They'll get ahead. I can't compete because everyone else is cheating too. Sorry, God, I can't. I can't do the right thing. I can't live with integrity, operate with integrity at work. Sorry, God. I just can't fight that temptation. I've tried and I've failed and it's just, I just can't. I can't do it. That one's too strong for me. I just can't. Sorry, God, I can't with my finances. See, I don't make enough to do what you're asking me to do. I can't. God, I can't. Not in that relationship. You don't understand what the dating scene is like out there. God, you don't understand this relationship that we have. We're different. I know that's what you said not to do, but we're different. I can't, God. I just can't. Where in your life are you saying, I can't, but God's actually saying, no. It's actually that you won't. And so look what God says next. So we just move on to the next verse. Now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. One of the things that many of us fear most is being disciplined or punished by God. Like this idea that, that God would discipline or punish us. But what the Bible teaches is that one, God's discipline is out of love. Just as a parent disciplines a child, you do it out of love and you do it out of what's best for them. Because you understand that learning a small hard lesson today is a whole lot easier than learning the big hard lesson when you're 40. Some of you internally can say amen to that. You won't because that's embarrassing, but you know it inside, right? We all do. You think that lesson was hard when you were 12. It's costly when you're 32. So one, God's discipline comes out of love. Two, 
what the Bible actually teaches is sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is that God gives you what you want. Not that he disciplines you or takes something away from you, but that he actually gives you what you want. Because most of the time, we don't actually know what we want or what, what we want will cost us. So God says, fine. You want to operate off of fear instead of faith? Fine. You think you want to cozy up to these new neighbors of yours in this land? Fine. Then I won't drive them out. And those people will become a thorn in your side and their gods will become a trap and a snare to you. Sometimes the worst thing God can do is give us what we think we want. So, so far we've looked at Judges 1, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter, the, chapter 1 and the first couple of verses of chapter 5 are essentially the abstract to sort of give us a picture of what we can expect in the rest of the book. So an abstract is what you would use in like an academic paper. Or you could think of it like the, the, like the cover leaf on a book that you would look at in the bookstore or shop for on Amazon. Right? The, the overview of the story that's put on the back of the book or on the little leaf right? It tells you what you should expect in the book. What we've seen to this point is like the abstract or that overview of the book. Here's what you can expect. And then the next 15 verses are the introduction. So when I'm teaching my students about how to write and the necessity of an introduction paragraph, I tell them a couple things. First of all, your introduction should set the stage for what your paper is going to be about. After reading your introduction, I should know what this paper is about. Number two, your introduction should be engaging, should be interesting. I should actually want to read your paper after I read your introduction. That doesn't usually happen, but it should. And three, after I finish your introduction, I should know your purpose your thesis. I should know not only what you're writing about, and it should be interesting, and I should want to know about it, but I should know why you're writing. What's the point of this? This next section is our introduction. It's going to set the stage. It's going to make us want to know, okay, so what's about to happen? Sort of set the purpose for this book. So I want to read for you these next verses, and it's a little lengthy, so I did not put them on the screen. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app open, you can follow along. And I'm going to start in verse 10. And the introduction actually starts with Joshua, even though at the time of Judges, he's already dead. So they go back and they start with Joshua, and they start with his story, him leading the people into this new promised land. And then we pick up where Joshua, when he dies, we pick up the story that Judges will cover. In verse 10, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So Joshua, and now this new generation, is starting to die off, and we're getting another one. And it says this, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals, which is other gods, 
And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the, anger, the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of those of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord as they did not do so. Wherever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But wherever the ju- whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So what we do is we enter into this cyclical story. The people rebel. They serve and worship other gods. They forget about the Lord God and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So what does God do? Well, God allows their enemies to do to them what they were supposed to have done to the enemies. Then people get upset. They start crying out and complaining. They apologize and say, we'll never do it again. And we're sorry, God. And God takes pity on them. And so what he does is he raises up a judge. Someone who will rule the people and who will help them fight against their enemies. This judge will be successful because the Lord's hand is on him or her. They will drive out the enemies. Everyone will celebrate and then they'll go back to doing what they were doing before. Though this time their sin and rebellion and wickedness will get even worse. And every time we go through this cycle, we get deeper and deeper into darkness. Listen, the Bible is not just a collection of moral virtues or spiritual heroes. The Bible isn't just a collection of encouraging thoughts or inspirational stories. The Bible is telling a story about a good, loving, righteous God who loves his creation and is working hard at redeeming that creation and drawing his people into himself. But we are human, we are sinful, we are wicked. In the book of Judges, we're going to see a few leaders who step up and show courage and bravery and do the right thing. 
Occasionally, we're going to see the whole nation rise up and say, we're sorry, we repent, we want to fix what was wrong. Lord, we recognize that it's our fault. But by and large, we will see failure after failure. Most of the, the judges in this book are the kind of men you would not allow your daughter to date. As the story progresses, we're going to see that the rebellion becomes worse, the oppression heavier, the repentance less heartfelt, the judges themselves more flawed, and even the salvation and spiritual revival that they bring about will get weaker and weaker and weaker. These judges that are raised up to save God's people are broken. There is only one hero in the Bible. And he's divine. Here's how I want to close. I want to look at one final thing. We looked at Judges 1 through 3. And I've highlighted a few things here because we see this tension in the book of Judges. This tension between God's faithfulness He made a promise, and he is going to keep his promise with this tension of God's righteousness. That he can't reward wickedness. So we're sort of left on the edge of our seats as we read Judges. What is God going to do? Will God finally just say, I'm done. I've had it. I'm through with you. Forget it. You are too sinful, too wicked. I can't approve of your behavior any longer. Because of his justice and righteousness? Well, what about his faithfulness? Or will we see God finally just give in to the people and say, fine. You're hopeless, but at least I can keep up my end of the deal. Well, then how can God in his righteousness reward wickedness and evil? Well, this tension isn't going to be solved in Judges. As a matter of fact, that tension will never be resolved in the Old Testament. It's only in the cross of Jesus that we find this tension ever resolved. Because it's in the cross of Jesus where God's faithfulness and his righteousness are put on full display and where they come together perfectly where God can say I will not tolerate nor reward evil evil and wickedness and sinfulness and rebellion must be punished and as Jesus takes upon himself our sin all of our sin and rebellion is punished God's righteousness reigns supreme. But on the cross of Jesus, we also see a full picture of God's faithfulness. And he says, I will keep my promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will draw you into myself. That God on the cross can fully punish Sin, that his wrath on our rebellion can be fully poured out, yet at the same time he can remain faithful to his promises to us. 
so while there is not necessarily a lot of hope in the book of Judges, ultimately our hope is in the one great ruler and warrior. The one who is both human and divine, who solved the problem that no human leader could ever solve. Judge, king, prophet, priest, none of them could do what Jesus came to do. And so we'll continue on our study in the book of Judges. But we'll do so always turning our eye to the only Savior who can do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. That we do not have to rely on the goodness or the strength or the holiness or the faithfulness of any of our human leaders because all human leaders are failed we may have bright moments but in the end we're our hearts are wicked and so lord as we're reminded that no human leader can bring about true and lasting salvation we turn our eyes and our attention to you we ask you, Lord, to come and do a work in our world and in our lives. Jesus, we trust you to be our Savior. We celebrate your righteousness and your faithfulness and how in the cross of Jesus, those come together. And we stand here to worship you because of it. So Lord, right now, would you be honored by the way in which we respond to you? The way in which we seek to honor you. Both your faithfulness and your holiness come together. We celebrate you. Lord, we pray this in your name.